Everybody, welcome back to the hustle. It's John Lamoro. I love this week's episode. I love it. It is with mega producer Rupert Hine. Now, I've grown up knowing who he is because he worked on a lot of the music that I love. But in case you don't know who he is, I'll give you the I'll give you I'll fill you in. So he starts out in the 70s and early 80s as more of a solo artist. Um, his stuff is very synth-based, but also very kind of art rockish, not you know, three minute pop songs. This stuff is more challenging, more arty than that. Uh, as evidenced by the song you're listening to here, it's called Surface Tension. This came out in 1981. There's some significance tied to this song that I, I explained at the beginning of the conversation here. So uh, put a pin in that in your mind. Anyway, early 80s, he sort of falls into production and he becomes one of the most successful producers ever. And we, so we go deep on a lot of the artists that he worked with in this conversation. I'll read you a list. Saga, The Fix, Howard Jones, Tina Turner, The Better Off Dead soundtrack, Kate Bush, Eight Seconds, Thompson Twins, Underworld, Stevie Nicks, Rush, and Duncan Sheik. That's a list of the people that we go deep on on here. I think all of it is fascinating. Yes, this is a long episode, but it's never even close to boring. And I guarantee you, even if you like the artists that we ta- that I just listed, you're going to learn color and information that you you there's no way you would have known it before. I guarantee you. So I hope hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, little heads up, we did this over two days, and so uh, in the second kind of the second half of the interview. You'll hear him reference, well, when we spoke yesterday, that's why. We just spanned over two days. I have to say a thank you to our listener, Vandal Trong. I've mentioned Vandal on here before, and he finally corrected me on how to pronounce his last name. This was a Vandal suggestion. I thought it was great. As I've said before, I love talking to producers because you just go right down the resume. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. What was this person like? And I... I would talk to producers all the time, but a lot of them never get back to me. So I'm so grateful that Rupert did. Anyway, I love this. I hope you will too. He called me from his home in Wilshire, England. So for starters, I, uh, you know, I have been aware of your name as a producer for most of my life, probably starting with Howard Jones' Humans Lib, Human Lib ab- album, which I'm going to ask yeah, yeah. you about in a minute. But mm-hmm. um, one thing that I thought was, I didn't know that you were a solo artist until I think it was the 35th anniversary of MTV and VH1 Classic here in the States played the first 24 hours of MTV uh, straight through. And right. I don't know if you know this, but Surface Tension was, I believe, the number 27 video ever shown on MTV. Did you know that? I think I did. I can't remember the exact number, but I know it was in the first day. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, I know that guy. I didn't realize he was, uh, he kind of was on his own. I had no idea. So, I mean, that goes back. I know your career goes way back with the, um, 
Oh, what was the name of your duo that did the Sounds of Silence? Um, well, we were called at that time, we were just called Rupert and David. That's it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Smile, friend. I've come to talk with you again because a vision softly creeping left its seats while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound. Dreams I walked alone, now streets of cobblestone, beneath the halo of a street lamp, I turn my collar to the cold and damp, when my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light, it split the night, and touched the sound. Light I saw ten thousand people, maybe more. People talking without speaking, people hearing without listening. And then you went on to uh, do most of your own solo stuff, but then of course you became this legendary producer. So, what was the plan starting out when you're a young lad there and you're you know, wanting to be, uh, get involved in music and possibly be a rock star. What was the plan from the beginning? Well, I, I mean, I, there isn't ever a plan at the time. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, we can look back and see the shape of things and make our minds up as to what elements are intentional and what were just happenstance and serendipity. But I know that, you know, when I was, when I was at school, I was in the school band and that was very very early days when you know before rock bands were invented that's when they were still called beat groups mm. so i was in a beat group and sung and played harmonica that was my role mm. but i knew that the second i heard pet sounds when it came out really that even though i was you know just in love with being musical in as many ways as i could what suddenly was revealed to me was how you could paint pictures with sound mm. this is something we couldn't do in our little beat group or i couldn't do you know just strumming a guitar or plinking on a piano mm -hmm. so I, I became completely transfixed with that kind of idea that you could really you know color the painting so richly and so deeply in ways that people would not understand it's the idea of having it's in the sense the morris escher or the you know the people that are playing tricks with you and you just can't quite understand why you can't understand that. That's mm -hmm. what I love about the arrangements and productions with Pet Sounds. And, you know, it has to be said, even the earlier Phil Spector mm -hmm. moments, although Phil was very much a one trick pony, whereas you know, it was a great pony. Yeah. Yeah. And I could hear it all, you know, all day long, whether it's River Deep Mountain High, whether it's you've lost that loving feeling, all those classic mm -hmm. Phil Spector were brilliant but mm. pet sounds showed me that you could be much more varied and more ingenious than just yeah. having one one clever trick okay 
Something um, I notice when I go back to your solo stuff and when I listen to a lot of the artists like The Fix that you've produced, there's a sort of, I don't know if it's, I don't know if cold, coldness or frostiness is the right word. It feels like technology is sort of pushing the, you're, you're expanding, you're experimenting in the moment, I can tell in a lot of ways, um, you know, the synthesizers and everything like that. Uh, maybe it's your voice. I don't know what it is, but it's this sort of like frosty coolness that's a little bit craft work, a little bit uh, maybe, you know, a little warmer than that. Is that really your style? You don't, I hope I'm not putting um, you in a box you don't want to be in. That's not what I mean no, to no, do. Well, I mean, it's, it's just as everything is valid. The, the way that in a receiver of a communicative art reacts is mm -hmm. as interesting as the way that the artist intends. Oh, that's true. Really. And that's a good attitude. Yeah. They're not necessarily the same thing. And again, it's very, very hard to have a perspective, you know, on your own material from the audience's point of view. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't set out to be, uh, how, what do you just call it? Frosty or frosty, yeah. you know, in, some, in some way, you know, with a colder aspect. No, uh -huh. not at all. I, I am on, I mean, on the albums that I was doing around the time that the setup came on MTV, which that was the second of three albums that I did for A&M, mm -hmm. which were also considered curious and different. And I intended it to be that. I was just fed up with hearing, you know, it's too many of the same old things. And also wanted to write songs about things that really mattered. So being unafraid to do that, if you were writing a song about something that was really a terrible situation in the world, uh, you wanted that sense of the terrible to be felt in the music. You couldn't just, you know, just sing it like mm -hmm. a love song. So you you had to, uh, in the way that all the paintings were coloured darker and more chilling, mm -hmm. and the, the idea would be that the vocal would just empathise with that idea mm -hmm. without being you know, theatrical or melodramatic. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. When you were, um, your pre-production, producer career going back to like quantum jump and um yeah. other things like that i don't even know because did you make much of an impression in the states was it pretty because it feels very the sound feels very european to me you know uh, especially yeah. british was and, and i'm wondering if you i mean i don't know that much about it did you have hits i know lone ranger from quantum jump was sort of a hit for you guys at the time Was that maybe yeah, that your biggest success pre 
production career? Uh, well, no, actually, I'd always been producing all the way through the 70s. And obviously, by the time The Lone Ranger became a hit, hmm. that was actually 1979, even though the song was written and first recorded in 74. But at the time I was doing my second solo album, so right at the beginning of my career in 71, 72, at that point, and I was recording for Deep Purple's record label, Purple Records. Mm-hmm. And one of the other artists they had signed was Yvonne Elliman. Sure. And she was most most famous for being Mary Magdalene and Jesus Christ Superstar and that point in her career. She wanted to do an album that would take her right away from the Lloyd Webber kind of musical thinking. Uh, she wanted to be kind of sexy, a bit mad, mm-hmm. also taking all kinds of relatively taboo subjects in the songs then. Mm. And she asked me, well, and David, the David of Rupert and David, mm-hmm. if we could write the songs for this album of hers, to, and meaning that she wanted it to take, you know, to be as far away from musicals and normality. Um, so she wanted this to be, you know, rough and different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we did. We, I, I wrote with David seven of the songs on that album. Pineapple time, teeth of bread and honey, licking my lips on a marzipan bunny, rolling my eyes at the sugar surprise. I can't seem to stuff my body enough. Lemons and limes, wine running over, cupping my hands, so pour me another. For the little bit there I can't seem to stuff my body enough Wait till I scream Give me, give me ice cream Give me a feel of your cool jelly deal And show me your wife And I'll cut me a slice Cause I'm into a pie you won't find in the sky Yes, roll me over I can eat all you give By which time she was saying the record label are pushing for me, you know, to have the guys, meaning Tim Rice, mm-hmm. to actually produce this new album of hers. And she said, but that's ridiculous. Obviously, that's not going to take me away from why can't you do it? Mm. She said, meaning <laughs> I love these songs, you're writing most of the songs. And you, you know, I said, well, I don't, I don't produce. I mean, I, I'm not a producer, so. I, and she said, what do you mean you're not a producer? Set on this album of yours, your own album, <laughs> produced by Rupert Hine. And I went, yeah, well, that's because no one else was. You know, I was, I was just <laughs> doing it. She said, well, well, can't you just do it, but for me instead? <laughs> <laughs> so it was a tough, um, you know, request to ignore. And, of course, there was that part of me that was just always in love with what to do with interesting sounds. And my second album, the one that she was referring referring to, which was called Unfinished Picture, had lots of very undone things at that time. Um, and it was quite, you know, quite a new reach into... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was even one track which was just done with a, a full-size Moog uh, with no other instruments at all. And, which one and is that? It was called. Okay. It was called, it was called Where in My Life. Can I feel the space to move around? Another mile. 
A circle where I can truly say This is I truly am This is where I am It was a soft song, but done with quite a few tracks of synths and sort of white noise and all kinds of other things that the, this jumbo-sized moog, you know, these were these mm. things that were just the size of a, a wall on a house uh, and just covered in you know, cables. I mean, you'd have to do so much work to get one little boop out <laughs> of it. And if you then wanted to, you know, to sculpt that into something more interesting, yeah. you you know, it would take many hours, but that's what I liked to do at that time, not on every track for the record. But So she was hearing all of this and saying, be brave, you know, but with my record instead. Got it. Okay. Um, we, in the end, it was, we, we didn't go that extreme on it because she still wanted to rock, really. Uh-huh. Okay. She, she just didn't, hadn't realized how much she wanted to rock. So. Got it. Okay. Well, good. So that's the turning point then. That's when things start to kind of change. Okay. Um, yeah, from, that, from that moment on, I was doing three or four productions a year and, and tracks of my own, whether it was for what was to be a solo album that that gave way to working with Quantum Jump instead. Right. And, and then doing quite a bit of work with Quantum Jump, but all, all the time doing other produ- productions. But they were all for English artists. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, actually, even Yvonne Elman was actually Hawaiian, but she was living in England. Got it. Okay. And she was living with the guy that became the guitarist with Quantum Jump. So we. Oh, got okay. That's the connection. Okay, got it. Okay. Yeah, um, but... the albums, you know, with with all kinds of people through the through the seventies were not American. I mean, literally, the first artist that I produced that was American, as in North American, was the Canadian band Saga. That's exactly what I was just going to ask you about. On the Loose has to be one of the greatest songs of all time. not lost anything i love that so yeah was that and that's the first when i look back over your resume that's the first sort of line item that i recognize 
as an American who grew up in the eighties. And so how did you, how did, did they, did they hear one of these other albums and approach you and say, we want that for ourselves as well? Actually, and, and uh, that's normally the case, but in this instance, that their tour manager for working in Europe was also my tour manager for Quantum Jump, and I knew him really well. And he just said, "Look, there's this guy that I'm working with, this band called Saga. They do a lot of kind of you know prog rock stuff, and they've been around for a while. But you know, I think that they they could definitely do much better than their albums." at this time, um, meaning that he just thought there was something much stronger to be gained from the band with the right kind of thinking. And he said, do you want to give it a listen? And now I had just done three punk albums in a row. Oh, okay. You know, just really out and out punk. And I was interested in completely different things than the North American rock band was. So I didn't expect to sort of like it. I listened to it, you know, thought it was interesting. And I thought after these punk records it might be interesting to see yeah you know what what i would do i mean i was thinking that myself and you've got to bear in mind that just before i got into a lot of, of this punk stuff i was doing bands like cafe jack who were kind of rather art rocky done two albums with Anthony Phillips who was the first guitarist with Genesis okay so I had kind of connections with a lot of prog rocky things before that and of course I'd done Camel's album mm -hmm. I Can See Your House From Here which you know was a really great album I have to say
they were very much in the same camp as Genesis and the Prog Rocket. So it wasn't, you know, that odd that I should have Not a go at album, but it was just coming out of this punk rock stuff. It seemed quite a change. Yeah. And then I met the band because they were touring in the UK at the time and found them extremely likable. Just Good. and the fact that they had heard my immunity album mm-hmm. and were using it, you know, when they were doing gigs for sort of uh, setting the atmosphere for the mm-hmm. first 15 minutes before they came on stage. And they were huge fans of immunity. So they were really wondering what someone who was capable of doing immunity would do with them. Okay, got it. Yeah, that's fascinating. I uh, I have a soft spot for those guys and they've never quite broken through over here, even outside of Canada, other than On the Loose, which is, you know, one of the yeah. most anthemic songs ever. But I think they deserve a little bit more. So now here around, I guess, the same time, I believe you start to form a partnership. And I say a partnership specifically because you and The Fix sort of go hand in hand there for the next like decade and a half. Why why them? How did this happen? Are you still friends with them? I mean, I got a lot of questions about that. Yeah, very well, no, very much so. Good. I, I like them all. And we're all still really good friends and we see each other from time to time. And not so much Cy because he lives in America now, but all the other guys live here in Britain and I see them from time to time. I saw them last year, a couple of times. They came to my 50 years in music business soiree. Okay. Which was really good fun, which we had nice. in the chocolate. Videos. We had lots and lots of the artists I worked with, but they all turned up, in fact, except for Cy, who couldn't because he was oh, that's too bad. something in America. But the rest of the band did. That was brilliant. Sure. Um, we started off when they were a punk band as well. Mm. Uh, and they, they were called The Portraits and they were interested in they got it was through my manager, Jeff Jukes, who became their manager as well. But he just said, I'd love you to meet this band because I find them really, really interesting. And I did, and we worked together. We did a song called Lost Planes. Love it. Great song. first two things that I did with the band they were still called the portraits the portraits then but then by the time those tracks were released in other parts of the world they became known as the fix and we just dived into the shuttered room album pretty soon 
after that. And, and working with them, it became clear, was just extremely timely for everybody. Ah, uh, okay. Um, for me as much as them, because what the chemistry that these five guys had really was such that they really invited me in the, in the biggest way possible, you know, to, to shake them up. They were just completely open. And, and in a sense, I became, you know, I, I felt very much like a sixth member of the band. Sure. By the yeah. end of Shuffle Room, I certainly did. And then by the beginning of Reach the Beach, you know, which was a year and a half later. Sure. Then the day we started work on that, it felt like all six of us were working on the same record. I didn't think of myself as being the producer or them the band. We were all the same. Right chemical entity got it yeah it was wonderful when i listen back to your solo stuff i i couldn't imagine a more perfect band to uh act for you to be a sixth member of i guess than the fix mm -hmm. um the yeah. sort of the perspective on pop or rock music seems so similar to me and so aligned so it makes perfect sense that they would be the band that would really kind of um embrace you and you guys embrace each other one thing I wanted to ask you about is, that, as I was mentioning before, your your solo stuff up to that point, I think, had probably uh, found success largely in the UK or in Europe or whatever. But with On the Loose and now some fixed songs, especially everything on Reach the Beach, you're starting to see some success in America specifically and possibly worldwide. How is your life changing when these when this level of success starts to come to you? Um, I, I was too busy to notice. Oh, really? I hear that um, from some of the people I interview. Yeah. I was just, I was literally just eating it up. I mean, really? the idea that people wanted me to work with them based on things I had done, mostly myself. The biggest trigger for my, the, the biggest part of my career was people that had fallen in love with immunity, particularly, and just some degree waving not drowning and wildest wish to fly so it was really my own records that other artists loved and they just mm. wanted to see what the, the mind behind that could do with their music and that was you know the greatest that's fascinating honor for me because that just meant i could really be myself that's what they were saying be yourself but yeah. with us that so is so interesting that's that's sort of what you hear about all those people who were at the first sex pistol concerts or Velvet Underground. They may not have had widespread acclaim, but the people who heard those things were so heavily influenced that it sparked them to go do something creative. And it sounds like you, in a way, had this same effect on the people that you ended up producing for. Yeah, and, and then me. Yeah, yeah, true. It, it, yeah. Really, it works both ways. And I was, I, I certainly found that lots of the things that I discovered on my own records, I could then immediately find a very different way of utilizing that same energy or that same discovery with say the fix being always the biggest example but howard jones you know not mm -hmm. much further back howard was another person who completely glued with me in a very very easy and very creative way yeah but you know there are the the favorites they would be my two favorites in terms of the the time when i was most exploding in terms of what could yeah. be done with recording uh, they were the artists that I could most explode that with. <laughs> Got it. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, I wanted to ask you, a couple listeners of ours have supplied me with some questions that they want me to ask you. I hope that's okay. 
Um, mm-hmm. One in particular, his name's Colby Zell. Uh, this was his question. There have been several times, and you just did this exact thing. There have been several times in which you've stated your relationship with The Fix was nearly to the point of being a sixth member of the band. The Phantoms album seemed to indicate a very bleak artistic direction for the band. Was there also a similar recognizable shift in the personal outlook of the members of The Fix when you recorded Phantoms? That might be kind of a heavy question, but do you did you no, recognize no. any kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, any kind of darkness or bleakness going on at the time? What an interesting question. I don't think I don't think that's come up before. I mean, nice. Good. I'm just I'm just thinking carefully because that would be I'm now imagining myself as a similar fan wanting to know a question like that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering obviously where the producer is there for every single note and as often is the case with the fix I would be there through many of the notes of the actual writing of the songs at their rehearsals I would always go to their rehearsals so we could sort of you know sew up this sort of energy very early on before we got to the studio um it's in- interesting now I think I, I honestly don't feel there was there was certainly not a darkness amongst the characters and not myself, but I think maybe I'm really thinking out loud here, meaning this is an instinctive thought. Okay. It's because there was always quite a bit of darkness on my own solo albums because I was mm. grasping with things that I thought were troubling about the world and wanting to be very open about that. And as I said earlier, if it was if it was a troubling idea I was writing about, I would want the effect of the track to be equally troubling. Mm-hmm. And when people said, well, well, hang on a minute, you don't want to make records that people don't really want to hear. And I would justify it by saying, well, in a way I do, because, you know, when people came out of, you know, these, um, what's that big Robert De Niro movie in the 70s, um, the war movie? War movie, Robert De Niro in the 70s. Vietnam. Oh, Deer Hunter, Deer Hunter. Deer Hunter. Now, that was a really troubling film to watch. Mm-hmm. It was a really horribly difficult film to watch. Most, of the time, most people, including myself, when I walked out of that film, I felt sort of that I'd been you know, really touched in a way that I didn't want to be touched. I felt uncomfortable. It felt hmm. ugly. It felt troubling. And then, of course, a week or so later, I'd been asked, didn't you go to see the Hunter? And I said, oh, yeah, that's an amazing film. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Because it took that long yeah. to really you know, become accustomed with everything and why those scenes needed to be shot to induce the effect that was difficult at the time, yet truly amazing in the context of the script and the idea. For, anyway, blah, blah, blah. So the same thing I felt was true with music. You could oh. have something that was a troubling song that was difficult to listen to, and this is not a pleasure. Right. But you know, on the fourth or fifth listening, you might go, Ooh, that's yeah. something really creepy that I love about this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that <laughs> you know, makes sense. So I think there was some of those elements may have touched the fix, saying, you know, because we're not just a pop or rock band. We don't have we don't have a name for what we are. We're just yeah. musicians wanting to excite an audience in whatever way we feel is right for the times. And I think that perhaps is the closest I can come to an answer there because okay. there was a lot of that sort of flavor of particularly on say phantoms itself is a really good example of making you know some of the loneliness or some of the troublesome side of life 
be clearer in their music too. Got it. So okay. Now, one of the things we try to kind of sensitively touch on on here sometimes is the business side of things. I don't. I I think if I understand correctly, the producers are most often uh, they t- they take on points, right? Because I don't think you're. Mm-hmm. I don't. I didn't notice any co-songwriting credits on a lot of these things. No. Okay. So, no. um, so when something like one thing leads to another starts to, br- you know, really break out, you're benefiting financially. And I don't, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I'm trying to understand kind of how the business structure is. Mm-hmm. You're also benefiting financially from the success of that song because you produced it. Correct. 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 Okay. And, um, did that, I mean, I know you were saying you were too busy to sort of, you know, take in the success that was happening around you. But do you remember anything in particular? Did you get a big, you know, nice big royalty check when that started to break out and go buy a new car or something like that? Or were you just head down in the studio, not really paying much attention? I wasn't, I wasn't past, I wasn't beyond the idea of buying a nice new car when royalty checks arrived, I must admit. Good. Um, But I think, you know, you, you would get feedback all the time, even if you're working flat out, you were still getting you know, feedback, people saying, you know, did, did you know we're in the top 10 in the States or did you know we're in, you know, and the first couple of times that happened, I mean, the first time that happened was with On The Loose with Saga mm-hmm. in the American Top 20. And I, when they said I, we were now inside the Top 20, I can't remember the figure it ended up getting to, but it was a platinum album and, mm-hmm. you know, it was a huge record. So that was my first really huge record. Yeah. Um, and, you know, where I was actually in the charts in well, particularly in America, but I was in quite a few other charts around the world as well. So that was the first time I'd seen that happen. It didn't occur to me at the time that that would be that I really would have noticeable financial. Oh, okay. It was not. I mean, not specifically that. You know, the joy was being in the charts and thinking, yeah. oh my, you know, that many more people bought this record that I've done with these guys than all these other the records except for the you know 15 above me in the charts right i mean that was quite a big thing to start to accommodate in your life you think sure. oh, this is... so all these people that have liked me are not just the people that are close to me and the people around in my hometown or in my home part of the business this is now reaching other parts of the world where no one has a clue who i am mm-hmm. and judging it on the music alone and are loving it enough to make it go in the charts that was a big realization that it was it was deeply rewarding and just made you know everything that much more good uh, exciting and positive which it was already yeah you know it's like just having somebody not just telling you that it's good but there's proof there's proof is, mm-hmm. is from people that you've never met and you don't know yeah are even living in another nation so that kind of yeah I will say that it's a good moment because you're calling it in the, you know, on a biz level question wise, that I always made it clear with all the artists I work with that if I pitched in lots of ideas to attract some of which could, for those that are really greedy, say, well, this is actually, this is part of the composition now because you've changed all these notes and Mm -hmm. we all, it's a great idea and we've now got a completely different kind of bridge section or chorus or whatever, you know, you deserve a part of the writing. I'd always made it clear that because I was the producer and I had a percentage anyway, mm-hmm. I would never do that. Everything that happened in the studio happened oh, for, interesting. with a 
of all of us, the specific reason for so doing is that no one's ever going to think, well, of course he thinks his own idea is the best in this song. Right. <laughs> He's going to, but I just felt it was a way of releasing that and it could enable me to be, you know, close to the writing without actually writing, but still wearing the producer's hat, who is ultimately supposed to be the last opinion. Got it. When the chips are down. Okay. Okay. Well, now, um, so that 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 prompts a, a question from me. Then, it, looking back over your career, and, and I'm trying to kind of go in order here, but it, we don't have to. When you look back, is there a particular song that you contributed something to that most people would know that you're particularly proud of? Uh, one thing leads to another. Really. a very slight piece by their standards okay i mean when it started but the energy that all of us put into it and the things we found to do to make a difference particularly on my side of it with the all the backing vocal arrangements you know which i just sung with mm. Cy. it was only really Cy and me singing and so we came up with these lots of backing vocals that became a bit of a signature for the fix and we ended up doing that on several albums over several tracks that we would have backing vocals that were not your average backing vocals. They would be things that would, they would be rhythm, rhythm vocals was mm. one of the ways I used to like to call it. But all those sort of facets, the, in one thing leads to another, there is more dense versions of new things that we all did in the one moment of time. And all this with a track that the record company only considered a B-side, not they didn't even oh. want it on didn't want it on the album. Oh, what? <laughs> they said, this is, this, is, this is a real also-ran track, but don't spend so much time on that. And I said, well, I don't know. I've got a feeling that we can do something really good with this. Now, in fairness with them, even, even, when, even when we finished it, the English record label uh, was still not very excited about it at all. Hmm. But it was when Steve Moyer over in the record label in America heard it, he came back with, holy fuck. <laughs> and he said it to me on the phone. He said, this is genius. Nice. We've, got this. We've just got to go with this. And we were already working on Saved by Zero as being, you know, probably the most likely mm -hmm. contender, even though it's a subtler track.
whole idea that this was just a throwaway B-side and shouldn't be on the record. Fortunately, Steve Moyer's enthusiasm for that then tripled back to the English record label and they started going, oh, you know, maybe he's right. Hmm. Hmm. Well, good. Someone made the right decision somewhere, right? Yeah. Good. That, that was Steve Moyer and I'm happy to say that out loud to this day. You know, he was the one that reacted in the way that the rest of us had reacted. We all loved it. We loved mm-hmm. the track. You know, we, whether we, whether it was going to be a hit single or not, who, we had no idea. Right. I never do. I never do any kind of production with a view to it being a hit single. I just make the best record I can make. There you go. And, yeah. and if it touches people, you know, then Good. you might have, you might have a hit. Good. Okay. All right. Now we got to talk about Howard Jones. Um, we're going to come back to Psy in a minute when I ask you about the Better Off Dead soundtrack. But um, Howard Jones. Uh, He's been so, so I don't, I don't know if this will even make any sense to you. I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. And um, Howard, for whatever reason, is still huge in Salt Lake City. And um, <laughs> I know it's weird. It is weird. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. I um, do. Yeah, I do. I, uh, I now live in Denver, Colorado, and I just saw him in concert a couple of nights ago here. He played two nights and right. pri- prior to that, he had played four nights in Utah, and he consistently goes through there. He sells out large venues. It's amazing. Yeah. So, so you understand yeah. then me growing up in Salt Lake and being an alternative music fan. How Howard must have impacted my life. I really love him a lot. Tell me wow. whatever you can about Howard because, uh, yeah, was he hearing? What did he hear? Was it Saga or The Fix or something else that made him think he wants you to do Humans Live with him? Well, he was actually quite a synth pioneer back in the day, and you kind of were in your own way, uh, but just less, I don't know, yeah. famous maybe. Yeah. So maybe that's what the the attraction was. No, I'm just having to I'm having to go back and remember in sequence. Um, he was at the time we first knew of each other. I mean, I'm pretty sure he listened to stuff I did after this, but the initial kind of energy the the ignition if you will of the idea came from he was playing in Aylesbury in Friars this club in Friars that had a great name for really really good music had a really mm. great name and Aylesbury is right out in the country you know it's not a big cool hit place in London but it was not so far from London we that you know they used to get a lot of people coming from London to go all the way out to Aylesbury simply because the music was really cool and they had had this one man and a bunch of funny little cheapo synths mm-hmm. all strung together with wires and cables and a guy doing a mime with him mm-hmm. on stage. <laughs> and they thought, what is this? Mm-hmm. What? And, and he, he literally, he kind of sold out in minutes. Wow. It's like one minute nobody had heard of him. He didn't have a record out, nothing. And then next minute, people were turning up from all over the area to to see this this fun guy standing there with all these little boxes and bits, bobs, and this guy doing mine. Yeah. And my studio was not so far away from this place either. We were out in the country too. So I was told Warners were very interested in signing them. Suddenly, everybody was very interested in signing him mm-hmm. because he, he was just one guy. Yeah. You're just going to be signing this one guy, and he came in this complete, he does everything. And he does everything live. It's not like he's just, you know, making fancy little things at home that you can't do live. Right. And so I saw him, and by the time I got to see him, he was still playing at Aylesbury, 
it was rammed to the ceiling. They were turning people there. They couldn't pile enough people in. There were, and the girls were screaming, fainting at the front of the desk. He's still not even got a record deal, right? Wow. He's a local guy. It was pandemonium. There were bouncers there. There were, you know, trying to drag these fainting girls off stage, and he jumped up to the the organ. They had a theatre organ uh-huh. in the same because it had been around for centuries. And he got that involved in the concerts, and the whole thing was just massive. But here was this guy that, that basically had just come out of nowhere, and still at that point not attached to any. We, we weren't hearing him on radio, no record label, no nothing. And the, the Warner's guy who wanted to sign him was saying to me, "What do you think of it?" I said, "It's you know really fucking amazing." Yeah, yeah. Um, and he said, "Would you like to work with him? Because couldn't you?" You know, with all your synthy stuff and tech, you know, you surely mm-hmm. you could. And I said, surely we can, I'm sure. And I got together and met Howard. Of course, he's just the loveliest man on the planet. And yeah. the brightest people I know. Just that lovely mixture of being extremely intelligent without ever really talking in that way. Mm, got it. Be- mm-hmm. But by behaving in the most intelligent ways and at the same time as being very emotive, very expressive. Yeah. And we we struck a chord very quickly. The guy at Warner's was a guy who had previously managed me. So mm. we had a kind of nice little close quality there, Max Hull. Okay. Um, all the people that got involved were very, very close uh, as a an, an integrated part of this new Warner Brothers. And when I say new, it was a completely new group of people that were brought in to re-energize, I think it was called East West then they called oh, it. Oh, right. Okay. In an effort to make it seem like it wasn't weighed down by the old-fashioned word Warners. And so the, um, this whole energy for reigniting East West Records in the UK with a brand new artist, with a brand new kind of music, uh, the four main people in the company all agreed that this artist was the artist they could make the biggest statement with. Wow. So we had a lot of following wind, let's say. Yeah. You know, in other words, it was it was amazing the amount of energy that was... I mean, fortunately, it was never in the studio, this energy. I mean, I got this only from secondhand from people around when we were writing, when we were actually recording the record, because I think that might have been too destructive if we know so many people were hanging so much on what we were doing in the studio but um it was extraordinary i mean it was just good okay good so, but, but also um the the first track new song
I didn't do that. New song was yeah. done with Colin Thurston, who had been working with Duran Duran at that time. Right. And they just right. done that one track. So that was suddenly at the same time just shooting up right. the radio charts. So there was proof that it wasn't just these guys at Warner's or these yeah. people up at Ellsbury. This had traction, you know? Yeah. When I saw him, this was the eighth time I've seen Howard live, I think, in my life. And um, it was just him and the piano. It was one of those acoustic shows. And he was telling yeah. stories, you know, in between. He told that story about Colin producing new song and everything. That uh, Humans Live album, and of course, the second one too, Dream Into Action, were... Dream, uh, Humans Live were, means a lot, I think, to the fans who hopped on right at the very beginning. And then Dream Into Action is the one that, you know, broke him more widely than that, I think, even. But, um, yeah. oh, yeah, the uh, I just I, I have a real spot, soft spot for those two as well. They're favorites of mine, especially Humans Lib. Give me a song on there that you were. Is there a moment on that album that you're particularly proud of? When I listened to that, comparatively with all the stuff that you had been doing up to that point, when I was saying about sort of the, the frostiness or whatever, Pearl in a Shell is a, such a warm, vibrant, fun, uplifting kind of song. I wondered if that was, yeah, I don't know, that seems almost like a little bit of a breakthrough or a little bit of a different kind of vibe than some of the stuff you may have done up to that point. What are you particularly proud of on that album? Conditioning. Really? Oh, that's my second favorite song on that album. Good one.
why conditioning? Why are you particularly proud of that? That combination, rather like we were talking about with one thing leads to another and the fix, conditioning was a really a great amalgam mm. of Howard's ideas, Steve Taylor, the engineer's ideas, and my ideas in the studio that created this kind of machine-like quality, but rhythmically and excitedly, not just for effect, you know, that it was also had all the energy of a rock track, but yet was just tons of little mechanical nuts and bolts. It was synthetic nuts and bolts that mm -hmm. created this very exciting track that, and also the way it was finally mixed um, from a sonic perspective, the mixing, which is, I, I put very much down to Steve Taylor there. He's, mm. you know, he's just such an amazing mixing head. Yeah. But, but so with Howard and myself channeling through Steve, everything on, on that mix, I think it's a really, really exciting mix that's for its day was very unusual and quite innovative. Okay. What about the second album, Dream Into Action? Um, is there a moment on that album you're particularly proud of? That that has to be What Is Love. Well, What Is Love is on Humans Live, but Dream Into Action has oh, like it? things will only get better and life in a day and stuff like that. Yeah, of course it is. Now, I was just, that was because I was going, I was channeling myself back to the time that, now I've, I've got to get this story right because it's really interesting, the timing ah. and the, the way that What Is Love happened. I'm not sure I can get that all into the right perspective. I should have done that. That's okay. If you think about it while we're talking, we can... But, but it's pretty, it well, it, it was just that it was the way that everybody knew that What Is Love mm -hmm. was this huge track for the record if we could get it right. Mm. if we could record what is love in its entirety at the beginning of the album sessions mm. so rather than doing all the rhythm tracks you know then all the vocals all the other arrangements and all that kind of process which was obviously typical and, and in a way still is they wanted us to do everything on that one song right up front at the beginning and even and even mix it so in the first you know four days of a whole album's worth of recording we recorded what is love and by the um, and the, the whole album recording, I think was only five weeks, certainly no longer than six weeks for the whole record. Okay. Whole so we'd done that track <laughs> in the first four days, and less than six weeks later, less than five weeks later, when we're finishing the album, as we're finishing the album, that same record 
is in the top 10. Oh, <laughs> wow. Can you imagine how that felt? I no. mean, the track that we'd started with uh-huh. earlier had already got into the top 10 by the time we were finishing the album just five weeks later. That is crazy. That has never happened ever before. And, <laughs> right. Oh, and, man. And since. Yeah. Wow. And that was an extraordinary feeling when we were mixing the whole album, mixing all the other tracks. This first track was already, we were hearing it on the radio. It was just everywhere. It was ubiquitous. He was mm-hmm. on Top of the Pops, which is our big TV show. We used to be sure. our big TV show. So it was a, a hell of a kind of boost to a, a very, very enjoyable mixing session. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, now, you worked on the In the Running album, too, which I feel like in some ways is sort of the lost Howard album because that one had Lift Me Up on it, which was a big hit. never hear about it anymore um and he was he had become way more sophisticated by that point in terms of his sound and scope and organic instrumentation and all those kinds of things um was he any different by the time in the running came around was he still he because i think of his buddhism he just seems like the most grounded optimistic positive force uh ever but i wondered if that remained consistent because in the running was sort of as the career was sort of on the lower, you know, on the decline a little. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take things one at a time. And as far as was there any change in Howard's, you know, just unassailable positivity? No, there wasn't. Good. Not at all. There has never been. Good. I mean, this man is the most archetypal, classic in every best way example of Buddhism. You know, and, well, specifically the Nietzschean Buddhism. Yeah. And he's, and he's very, very much its greatest ambassador. Yeah. Uh, it's really, he's an extraordinary man on many, many levels, but his Buddhistic underpinning is really just staggering. Good. Good to know. I, I've, I've, never called, I've never called myself a Buddhist, but I've, but I have lots of Buddhistic elements that I trust completely and feel very natural about so if, mm-hmm. if if I'm ever forced to say you know you're a so you know, what kind of religion are you so I'm not any religion well if you had to be yeah. what would it be then yeah, unequivocally it would be Buddhism lots of the artists I've worked with Tina Turner Susan Vega you name many of them are Buddhist and a lot of people said to me at one point 
are you a Buddhist? Because you only seem to ever work with Buddhists. <laughs> that was a complete exaggeration, but I, I took their point. And yeah. I said, well, no, but I'm drawn to a, a Buddhistic mind because sure. I know that the text is going to be interesting. It's going to have, in essence, a positive view, but not in some asinine, grinning way, in some really pal- palpable, mm-hmm. earthbound sort of somewhat. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So yeah. in, other words, in the running, I think it was very much, you know, following the intensity of, because obviously, although I did, you know, Human Lib and and the What Is Love album, Dream Into Action, mm-hmm. but we had, for each of those albums, we released these 12-inch albums too, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which were hugely extended and were, you know, quite, quite handsomely creative in their own right. They weren't right. just remix records. Um, we've done quite a lot of work together, and I think it was really, again, from the most positive perspective, Howard seeing how how things might work if he worked with uh, with Arif Mardin, mm-hmm. which was the record he did. And Arif Mardin was, you know, a huge name, of course. It's sure, legend, yeah, an absolute legend. And he'd done the Scritti Bolitti record, so it, you know, Howard felt that you know he may be a legend, but that Scritti record's really nice, and mm-hmm. it might be to see what happens. But you know, the truth, in my opinion, the truth was that 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 slightly stalled things because partly of the way Arif works, not wanting to be uber critical or anything, but just it's you know, it's not really a critical thing. It's to do with energy levels, you know, when between yeah. people that work together. Sometimes it, it it's a modus operandi that being that's being forced on someone that doesn't really suit them and other elements I, I don't I think really that that was the, the stalling point in Howard's career was that record with mm-hmm. Arif by the time you got to in the running uh, you know which was with the delightful Ross Cullum who I adore mm. uh, and you know Midge was around and lots of you know some good people and of course he was making that album very much in his own very very well equipped home studio yeah so by, by then he was you know already going down the roots of um the cottage industry version right. of how it's rather than it having to be the uber pop singles being on the tv shows all that kind of stuff Got it. just make great records okay well good um okay i've got uh we got to talk about Tina Turner for a minute. Now, I will admit I respect Tina Turner, but I've never owned the Private Dancer album. It's not, it's not really my thing, you know. But it's, uh, but I respect her. I think I have her greatest hits and that kind of stuff. But that album has to have been the biggest benchmark of your career. I'm guessing. I mean, uh, if not even if, in terms of sales and just impact on culture, how did you, of all people? <laughs> get involved in producing a Tina Turner album? Did she know who you were? Uh, this, is, this is a very easy question to answer. It's very particular. Roger Davis knew that uh, Roger Davis is her manager and Roger Davis, uh, Australian chap who I knew, knew uh, loved him. I uh, didn't know him personally, but mm-hmm. I, had lot, I knew a lot of nice things about him, good things about him. He approached me it was he that approached me not tina saying that because the uh you know 
the track that they did for the British Electric Foundation album, the Let's Stay Together track. Mm -hmm. That was done for, you know, it was, did you ever hear that record? I did, yeah. You know, all these different people just doing one track, you know, in, in a kind of electronic way that was unexpected. And she did that track. She'd never sung a soul song because she only she only she only likes white man's rock and roll. Oh, interesting. So she'd never sung a soul song. She'd always, you know, not not wanted to, just not wanted to be. No, it was just let's just say not interested in that kind okay. of music. So the fact that Martin Ware said, well. We just love the idea of you doing Let's Stay Together. And then, of course, it was it was a minor hit. I mean, it mm -hmm. only got to 26, if I recall, on the, in the English charts, just the single. Yeah. And that record company then said, holy Jesus, you know, with we're up there in the top 30 now with this. If we had an album to go with it, you know, we could be we could we could sell 50,000 records here. So what they, what they tried to do was to get three or four different producers all working at the same time on three or four tracks a piece mm -hmm. so that an album could be done in about a week. Ooh. Um, I think it was about 10 days in the end. But, you know, inside of two weeks, a whole album was written, arranged, recorded, mixed, finished to accommodate this minor hit with Let's Stay mm -hmm. Together. Mm -hmm. So bear in mind... Even as we finished that record, the line from the label was, with the following, we could, we could sell 50,000 units here. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> 20, 20 million later. Yeah, oh my gosh. Wow. Now, were you involved in the selection of songs? Because she wasn't, she's not a songwriter, so everything on there is, you know, quote unquote, everything a, on there was, a cover. Everything on there was found by Roger Davis. Okay. Roger Davis is the executive producer, and very much so, meaning not by some, you know, business name. Mm -hmm. He was very much the man who found everybody. When he approached me, he said, you know, would you like to work with Tina Turner at all? I mean, obviously, bear in mind, then she was, she'd gone all the way down to just playing bars yeah. and stuff, you yeah. know. So, 
Um, and I and Riverdeep Mountain High because I was such a Phil Spector. Mm -hmm. Oh, makes sense. Okay. One of my favorite records of all time on that basis alone. Mm -hmm. I just yeah, sure, it'd be fantastic. Let's let's do it. So we've got no time. You got to do it. Can you write songs? Because he, he knew mm -hmm. he was only approaching people that he knew wrote songs. And then, and here was the trick: that one of her favorite bands was The Fix. No, really? That's so yeah. funny because I was rewatching the B Better uh, Be Good to Me album or uh, video yesterday, and I yeah. thought, I wonder if Tina Turner even knows who Cy Cernan is. Oh yeah. Really? Said, uh, it, well, it was it was Jamie that she really wanted. You know? Okay. Mm -hmm. It was she just loved one thing leads to another and the guitar part. No way. And then she heard all this other stuff, and and just this constant edgy guitar without it ever being rock. Yeah. You know, that's that's what we invented with Jamie was this really incredible cutting edge that was incredibly aggressive, yeah. but there was nothing fuzzy or old school rock. It was a Very completely true looking at it and that's what she loved so wow. but it was roger davis who knew that she loved that so then he was saying to me the fact that she's such a fan of the fix but i know that you write great pop songs and you know mm -hmm. we can do something really interesting here so she had that she needed no persuasion at all uh to turn up and you know wow. we did three great tracks on that album which one of which was which was the Grammy for the best female rock that year. Yeah. Is, is better be good to me. I didn't write that one. That was written by. Yeah, that was a Holly Knight song. I had uh, it was originally done by Spider, and there I've had their lead singer Amanda Blue on here. Um, right. That's why I was asking about the selection of songs. I mean, Private Dancers by Mark Knopfler. Um, she even does a cover of Bowie's 1984 on there. Um, yeah. I didn't, but I wondered if you were involved in the selection. But it sounds like you weren't. That was all Roger Davis. I wasn't. I mean, I wrote the other two songs that I did with her. And the only one I didn't write was Better Be Good To Me. And that was something she just loved the lyric. Interesting. Okay. She, she just wanted, she wanted to sing those words. Yeah. Huh. You know, and, I, and I get that from Tina. I completely get that. So she knew she could spit those words out. Right. Okay. And by Jeff, she could. So when you were creating that album, it, it wasn't... Um, it didn't have the aura of a big comeback album. It was just, we've had some success with this Let's Stay Together single out there. Let's kind of try and capitalize yeah. on that and we'll make this new Maybe. album of hers. Maybe yeah. was it after that it was finished and they heard what you had done with this album that the record label thought, 
we can create a whole marketing campaign around this, that this is Tina's comeback and her release from Ike Turner. And because that, that album is more than just a piece of pop music. It, well, it, that, that is that, but the, the, the whole trick there is that that's only relevant to how it was released in America, which was sometime later. Oh, huh. When it, when it was released in the UK, there was none of that. They, really? had no, they had no idea this was going to be a big record at all. They just knew that it was worth putting out. And the record, bear in mind, the record was made so quickly. Mm. There was no time. We all just we all just dived at it, had great fun, but none of us were in the same studios. So it's like all of the tracks were being done in different studios wow. at the same time. And she was literally whizzing about from taxi to taxi between studios doing vocals. So the whole record was made in 10 seconds. Wow. And when it was delivered, you know, it was like, great, oh, fantastic. Well, we should put this out and see what happens. And therefore, I don't think um, I don't think I'm telling uh, all these years later any secrets out of school, as they sure, say. Sure. But that deal for that album was renegotiated <laughs> more times than I can count. I mean, normally you might get one renegotiation because of the unexpected success of a record. Right. And the artist and their manager says, look, hey, hey, you know, when we did this deal, it was a long shot for everybody and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Now, now we want a better deal. Well, it, you know, this, this absolutely catastrophic. No, sorry, not catastrophic at all. What's the word? Um, I know what you mean. Catastrophic, uh, just big, this explosion yeah. of, yeah, I know what you mean. The direction was so fast. The curve was so exponential that, it, you know, this 50,000 units, you know, <laughs> goal the record uh was just suddenly seemed to be more and more ridiculous so a new deal was done but come on guys you know another, yeah. another. and then it was even more successful they, they renegotiated and then again later it was even it was becoming the big at the time it was the biggest selling female album of all time yeah every couple million you've got to go back and reassess how everyone's going to get paid on this thing that and is that crazy was, and that whole comeback narrative is just something that they came up with in the states to, uh, I mean, to you know, to sell records. That was not part of the marketing campaign. Uh, no, because they, they were watching, they watching the success it was having here, and they thought, you know, gosh, we're so blimey, you know, this is, we've got to, we've got to launch off at the very beginning at a much higher level over here, and they yeah. did. That is far out. I would not have known that. Oh, interesting. Okay, now. Talk about, okay, you had to, your life had to have changed. I mean, you were saying earlier you're too busy to really notice the financial, you know, windfalls that come from success. But I'm guessing that all changed with the Private Dancer album, correct? It, yes, it did. Okay. Um, but in, in a way, I mean, it already, the first the first shock was, was certainly Saga. Yeah. Because that was a top 20 album in America. So that was... That was a chunk of change which I didn't expect, and I didn't really know until, like I say, you know, given I was work, making records all the time, I was literally going from a Fix album to a Krista Berg album to a Howard Jones album to a Tina Turner album, back around, you know, in other words, four albums like that per year, from 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, so those five years were absolutely non-stop. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was loving all of it. It wasn't, Good. you know, it wasn't nonstop. Oh my God, what am I going to do? Sure. Not sure. a bit of it. You know, I was just, I, I didn't want to go to sleep at night. What a waste of time. Right. Oh, that's the best feeling in the world. 
Um, one thing I noticed, though, when I go back over your resume is that I don't see a, a series of now higher, um, bigger named, higher level artists coming in the wake of Tina Turner other than more Tina Turner albums. It's other than Stevie Nicks, which we're going to talk about later. Um, it's not like suddenly Billy Joel wants you to produce his new album because of the success you had with Tina Turner or uh, Bonnie Raitt. Or I'm just thinking of all these, you know, really big name bands. It's you're still sort of keeping with the same kind of vibe of, you know, you've got Eight Seconds, Thompson Twins, Bob Geldof. Okay, well, I can, I can cut it in there. That's entirely my own absolutely considered intention is i was i was asked all the time to do some of the biggest albums in history but the point that i was asked but i just said oh god no i mean i remember being asked to do def leopard uh-huh. at the time when they were absolutely huge and yeah, the manager yeah. was so so furious that i said no he said do you know you're just turning down six million bucks <laughs> in your pocket i mean what what makes you what gives you the right to say no and I said, because in this case, it was really clear. He said, he didn't have any demos. They had no demos for this new album oh, the guys were going to do. He said, we don't do demos. This is Def fucking Leopard. Do you want to do it or don't you? And I said, no, I don't for the reasons I'm just given. I, you don't, you're not asking me to produce their last record. You're asking me to produce their next record. I need to know what that's going to be. Right. But oh he was, man! He was incensed. I can't remember his name now, which is probably just as well. Right. But and I would get that a lot. You know, people, I, because I, I never did it for the money. I've never right. done it for the money. The money is this sort of fantastic thing that happens on a, off the back of a really, really great record that you loved. Yeah. If you sit there and try and cultivate a hit record by having all the hit ingredients you can possibly muster with the biggest hit band, it sure as eggs is eggs. It'll be a disaster. And even if it is successful, that will not be rewarding. All you've done is yeah. do something according to the rules, you know, being yeah. smart. And I don't want smart records. I've wow. never wanted smart records. That's so interesting. So you, that was by design. You continue to, the success of Tina Turner just empowered you to continue to work with people that interested you, not yeah. go for the gold with other, you know, potentially yeah. hit albums. That is fascinating. I've yeah. always wondered. Okay. I know it would have killed me yeah. if, I'd, if I'd had to make records, you know, uh, what's it, that painting by numbers sort of hit records for yeah. major, major artists. That would have completely destroyed me. Hmm. Interesting. It, it takes the life out of it. It takes yeah. all the life out of it. It just becomes a, it becomes a craft rather than an art. Got it. Okay. I, lo- I love the art yes. of creativity, the art of music. It's, it's got to change the way you feel in three minutes that song it's got to change the way you feel it's so important it's got to be there in the writing it's got to be there in the arranging it's got to affect you in a way that three minutes later you feel different yeah that is really profound i i can completely see what you mean um now let me ask you sort of a personal question could you live off the the money from the success of private dancer for the rest of your life is that uh were you kind of set at that point my first reaction to that is, no, I couldn't, but that's because of Google. Oh, because of Google? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Got it. Okay. That's a common response. I mean, not specifically Google, but because of the internet, everything has changed. So, yeah, I wondered about that. It, it's, okay. really because of, it's really because of Google, because they own YouTube 
And if you've got the world's biggest picture board, which is yeah. the search engine, coupled with the world's biggest, um, you know, picture board for sort of posting up stuff that you want people to look at or listen to, yeah, you've got you've got the whole engine yourself, all of it together. You drive to look for things through a search engine, like a, a yellow pages, if you will, mm-hmm. and you've also got the huge picture board where you've got all the stuff that those search engines want to find, mm-hmm. you own both of it. Yeah. You own both of it. And you're not going to pay for anything that you stick up on that picture board. You're yeah. just not going to... You're, in the end, out of huge pressure, you'll pay a point. Not, 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 not one percent of a dollar for a track. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that will get you off the hook. And of course, no longer is that true. You know, there's yeah. now huge, huge... I'm, I'm involved very much in the... The battle to it's got nothing to do with the all the piracy issues and dcm takedowns and all that it, it just requires a completely different way yeah. of looking at respecting the creative arts film television music all, all of them everything that can be digitized google and five other companies you know that are yeah. massive monopolies themselves you shouldn't ever allow monopolies to get that big on the planet we didn't used to yeah yeah. Until the end of the last century, we didn't use to. Microsoft was stripped down in Europe into their component parts because they got too big. Yeah. And it, did it did it um, kill them? No. You know, after several years, they worked on all those departments and they built up again. And but they're no longer the you know the kind of absolute monopolist, monopolistic mm-hmm. uh, that Google are, and you know, and other of the yeah internet giants let's uh let's get into the better off dead soundtrack that's actually what i was listening to while i was waiting to call you you know that movie is kind of seminal in my life as it is for a lot of other people how did you get chosen to do the soundtrack for better off dead uh it was originally because i mean the trigger for it was that a&m which was my record label at that time uh, in Los Angeles, were also producing that film and therefore kind of in a way responsible for some recommendations for the soundtrack side of it. So they proposed me to Savage Steve Holland. And then once he saw that I'd done what I'd done, he said, great, let's try it, you know. And so we met and it was a great relationship. He was a lovely, lovely man. Cool. Now, did you were you um, did you write all the songs, even the ones you didn't perform? No, the ones. Uh, I mean, obviously, the the one with "Sigh from the Fix" was right. was one of mine.
But Howard Jones track was one of Howard's. And yeah, of course. All, all the other ones, in fact, were their own songs. I was the executive producer in the sense of choosing those tracks for the film. Okay. Um, but no, I didn't write them. Okay. Yeah, the Howard one. Um, so I don't. I, the for whatever reason that soundtrack has never become available on CD that I know of, and you can't buy it on iTunes or listen to it on Spotify or anything like that. Um, I, <laughs> I, I I I didn't know. I mean, it was available on soundtrack originally, but and it, was, it was done as a CD reissue as well. It was done as a vinyl originally, and then a CD reissue. Oh, okay, okay. But this was back in the day. I'm yeah. not. I guess okay. it's not been re-released by anybody since. No, I've never been able to find it. And um, so I had to download it, sorry, years and years and years ago, um, yeah. just because I love it so much. And yeah, the the Howard song was not included on the original one. Did You know what? Now that I think about it, were you, I guess your relationship with Howard is probably what put that song in the movie in the first place. Yes. I mean, okay. and the same for the Tears for Fears track. And, you know, we were, yeah. these, these were good they were all friends, really. What's your relationship with Tears for Fears? I don't have them on my list, Rupert. I didn't know you had a relationship with Tears for Fears. Uh, well, only only as friends. I mean, oh, okay, I, okay. I didn't, I didn't work with them, but I knew them well. And fun enough, I, I spent a, a very memorable weekend racing motor cars with the guys on a racetrack in England. Okay, okay. Oh, fun! I didn't realize they were into that. I love those guys. I find them really interesting. Huh. Yes. Okay. Were there ever taught? Now you had mentioned yesterday um, that Def Leppard had approached you to re- to produce them. Were th- who are there other? What are some of the other people who have, you know, come across your orbit that maybe you didn't pr- produce but you could have, and something that we would have known. I mean, I, I used to say for a long while back in the eighties when I was doing an awful lot of work and and. Because I was doing my own albums, I would go out amongst people in the not just um, magazines and newspaper journals, music papers, but also obviously radio stations and to a lesser degree, some television stations. All those interviews, you know, it always used to end with something like, you know, if you could produce anyone in the world, you know, who would it be? be or right. who would it have been if it's in a past tense and i used to say for a long time that kate bush was someone that i would oh, like i could work. see that yeah but in reality i got to know kate quite well and and you know, she, she had spent all by that first album her whole life producing herself because she always knew exactly what she wanted mm. and in in getting to know her a bit i knew exactly why it would have been inappropriate and of course, in, pretty much it would have been inappropriate for anyone to have produced her. She is really someone who, in a sense, like myself, paints pictures in sound. And she just yeah. spends a long time getting that painting right for her. And it is a painting. It's, you know, it's all my own work in quotes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that makes really a lot of sense. Important. Okay. When you hear certain songs... I don't know if this is a different question. In my mind, it is a different question. Is there Are there artists out there that you think, I could really, like when you hear a particular song, and I, maybe this goes back to the 80s during like the real heyday where you were so busy. Yeah. Did you think, I could really do something special with this band? 
Um, and and I, I look at that as a different question than who would you like to, because you might want to, you may just want to produce someone you're a fan of. But if there is there somebody out there that you think, I could do, I could really put my mark on these guys. I think I know where to take them. Uh, that was really Kate Bush. That's, was that's, it? Okay. I didn't know if they were different answers. I, I felt that, you know, I could flesh out her paintings in a way that would go beyond what she could probably be doing herself simply because I had so many tools at my disposal and I had a level of objectivity, which she couldn't have, that might just make a huge difference. And yeah. I always felt that her own perspective was too close to her subject matter and not uh, in a way fully aware of what she mm. could do, what, what, I mean, Dave Gilmore used to give her quite a bit of advice, but that was really as a friend. Right. The, the special relationship you have, you know, when you when you choose to produce someone is, you know, where you're both giving your all to it collectively. You don't really understand how far that can reach until you really work with somebody that you have a fantastic relationship with. And then I think that, you know, the producer artist role can suddenly be almost shocking for artists, you know, sure. artists who, who were stuck with maybe some rather, you know, day-to-day -day kind of not very exciting producer, but who got the job done and they think, well, you know what, I could probably do that myself. Mm. I mean, it is, you know, to be a producer that can show you completely different ways of doing things, some of which you will prefer beyond anything you could ever have dreamed up yourself. These moments are magic. And I just felt that that could have been true with Kate, but as I say, at the end of the day, it, even though her productions are, in a sense, more Spartan, and I don't mean really minimal. Mm -hmm. Minimalism is fantastic. I mean, good minimalism is great. Uh, it's one of those aims that we all have as producers in our life. If we can do something amazing with very, very little, sure, it's always the most stunning thing. So I don't really mean Spartan in that sense, but you know, just it was as if. As if she only had a certain number of colours on the palette and wasn't really aware that those colours were limited. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I could see, I could completely see why that you two would have made a really interesting pair. Um, but you're well, right I mean, about she, her own artistic she, integrity. She did, she did ask me to produce her. You know, I did produce in the end, uh, in, of course, a different way, but her... Her contributions to the Amnesty International album. Ah, mm -hmm. It was it was basically recorded live with Gilmore. 
Um, but she then asked if I could take, you know, finish it all off and mix it and prepare it for going on in the album. So in that sense, I was delighted that she did that. And the other extraordinary thing about that particular instance was when I went to pick her up from her place in the car to take her to the studio because we were 30 miles outside of London. Mm. And in the car, she just, and I didn't, I didn't, so I did, at that point, I didn't really know her. This was a very green conversation and we were having a, just a lovely chat in the car. I didn't know how much she really knew about me. And I, I certainly know that she wouldn't have been, you know, drawn to maybe quite a few of the sort of artists that I'd recorded with, or certainly wouldn't have been drawn to the Tina Turner albums that I was in the middle of doing at that time or sure. such like. She just out of the blue said, you know, my favorite track of yours. So I was thinking that she was going to mean of my production. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And she said, it's your song, No More Than a Firefly. Just when I needed a friend, I heard a call from where you are. Getting full, like children, soaring onto the promised star. my most favorite song of yours it's beautiful and i was so shocked that she even knew i made my own records wow. i just thought she was talking about me as a producer and the fact yeah. that she not only knew my own records but knew the third of a set of three and then she said well paddy my brother introduced me to your albums back with immunity which he always held held as highly uh-huh. um and he shared that with me and i and i was really fascinated by it but by the time it got to the third in that set with uh, No More Than a Firefly. She said, I, I just love that track. I play it all the time. Oh, that is great trivia. That's a really cool story. I like that. Uh, nice. Yeah. Now, I have to ask you about Eight Seconds. I love Eight Seconds. They only ever put out one album. They put out two, but the second one was one of those that kind of sat on the shelf and only, you know, very, barely trickled out across the world. But uh, yeah. Alma Kantar... I saw them in concert. I saw them open for Wang Chung when I was 13 years old in Salt Lake City, Utah. Right. And uh, I I just, ha I love them. And I had uh, Andy Del Castillo on here a couple of years ago. And okay. I've always, yeah, I've, he he's, you know, as maybe you know, I don't know, he's not even in music anymore. But um, I've always seen that band as like the Fix's little brothers, you know? Like we want to, we're new and we want to sound like the fix. And can you, you know, kind of that little, I want to do what my big brother's doing. Tell me yeah. about working with eight seconds. Is that sort of the idea? Cause they, they sure sound similar, but in a, in a good way, I'm not saying anyone's copying anybody. Um, that was the time, but they're a really great band. That, that album is so strong. 
It's interesting. I mean, yeah, the problem for me was that they did sound too much like them. And I thought that working together, I was going to be able to amplify them more in their own right. But they they were just so completely buried in the idea of wanting to be the fix. It became a problem for me. I wasn't really able to express really uh, the music as strongly as I would have liked. So that was their idea. They, the, yeah, they, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they wanted they were, to sound like the fix. Well, I mean, you know, they didn't have to tell you. I mean, it was, as you say, it was like <laughs> it was like a second version of the fix, yeah. but, not, but not as good. So it was tricky for me to push them beyond that. Huh. Okay. Yeah, that's too bad. It never quite caught on. Did you get to know them very well? I think one of their members, and I'm blanking on his name, he died um, just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, well, I I, uh, I don't know if there was any interesting stories relating to that album that kiss you when it's dangerous song made a little bit of a ripple uh here in the states anyway Yes, I don't think they did anything anywhere else. But uh, as I say, I was slightly disappointed with it, really. Okay. I was aiming, I was aiming to do, you know, better things, but they were, they were just, you know, it's like when somebody wants to sound like another band. There's not yeah. much to do. Yeah. I said I want to make them sound more like the Fix than they did already. I was interested in finding out what else, you know, was more original about them. Yeah, yeah. But, they, but to be honest, they really wasn't. Huh. Okay. Um, the song on that album, Zoe, is one of my favorite songs ever. So if, 
If nothing else, you, uh, I mean, you've done a lot of great things, but I got to especially thank you for making Zoe because I love that album, that song a lot. Okay, the Thompson Twins, Close to the Bone. You probably know this. I mean, they're, they're sort of kind of on the decline a little bit or they're, or maybe yeah. not the decline, but they're trying to keep it, to, they're trying to keep it going, you know, and it's not as easy to keep it going. They're not at the height of their powers. And Joe yeah. Leeway leaves. In fact, I have another question for one of my listeners, Brian Lennon. Yeah. He asked specifically if Joe leaving, what kind of an effect that had on the sound? Because it is a little different. But you, yes. I don't know if Outsiders, I hate to say this, Joe almost seemed more like, um, I don't know how important whatever he was doing musically with the band was to their sound. But you sure yeah. noticed it when it was gone. But any, So anyway, tell me about that dynamic. Yes, well, they were. I mean, when they started off, they were they were like a ten piece, you know, back in the seventies. So the, their beginnings were were extremely interesting. But of course, they didn't really get any real visibility until they had become a three piece and they were doing high pop, let's call it. And that was right. really happening at the same time that I was having all the success with Howard. And funnily enough, the people that were very instrumental, well, actually, the people that suggested we work together were of all people underworld oh <laughs> they're next and, that's what i'm gonna ask uh, you about next and underworld they their um publisher um a guy called rupert he had the same christian name rupert i'm having difficulty remembering his surname now but he was the, he was their publisher and also the thompson twins publisher mm. and they suggested underworld both carl and rick suggested that you know it might be really good to work with the Thompson Twins, uh, based on the fact that they'd been in parallel with so much of Howard, Trump, Howard uh, Jones's career with with me, it, it right. was it was not at all illogical. And you know, they obviously weren't wanting to sound like Howard. They had their own sound. It was basically Tom. You know, it was Tom yeah, right. wrote everything, and it wrote everything musically. And Alana obviously wrote the text. So that that was the sort of writing duo by the time I got to work with them. And the reason that, in a sense, they're slipping off the, the the top end of the hits by the time I worked with them on that record, you know, I think it was, I was brought in to see if I could really help amplify that side of them again. Mm. Um, in reality, they were trying to make records for radio. Yeah. And that was a complete shock to me. Really? Uh, we were sitting we were sitting around and talking about songs and I said, you can never make music for your audience. You can only make music for yourself. Your, your audience will not believe it. And if you start making music for the medium in between the radio stations, then you're really fucked. Yeah. So we talked about that quite a bit, but that was really what they were focused on. They said mm -hmm. they knew what radio stations in America, like which kind of songs that they do and they had it they thought they had it all worked out and i said well you've got it all worked out on the past you know on the last even the most current would be your last album and how things were since since then in the world of radio that's gone that's already history it's yeah. it's now you can never never write for that i was shocked that they were saying that huh so we we nonetheless had a great relationship working together. I enjoyed working with both of them very much. Lovely, lovely people. But we sort of never got off that. Huh. This is what people expect of us. Yeah. 
Now that's no audience wants to know that's what their artist thinks. Yeah. They want to know that what they're listening to is some completely central aspect of their most favorite artist. They want to know that this is them. They're getting a glimpse into them. They're not seeing them trying to entertain the audience. That's right. horrible. That's true. And it's interesting because Tom, you know, after Thompson Twins kind of officially fizzled out a couple years later, he yeah. went on to be a very uh, prominent um almost like a trip hop or, or techno or whatever producer for a while yeah. there. Yeah. And you would think, I bet he's giving his people the same advice that you're giving him, but yeah. uh, maybe he just couldn't see it at that. Maybe too with Joe leaving and there being the sense that, uh, you know, they had to work harder to maintain the radio. I mean, Get That Love is still a really great song and it was a good hit. after that you know it's kind yeah. of it yeah, yeah definitely okay and i and i i really love him and them and uh i feel like for a long time i think people they're one of these bands that i feel like have sort of been forgotten to time and i think it's because those two distanced themselves from their legacy for a long time tom is only now starting to kind of play some of those 80s festivals which i love and yeah. for better or worse they remind people that of these great hits. And I felt like Tom kind of did not want to go there or touch them for so long that they sort yeah. of fizzled from memory too. And they shouldn't have, they're a great band. Yeah. And I mean, when you, you know, you still hear in, I don't know, supermarkets everywhere, you will get, you will get, I don't mean that, that sounded very negative, but no, I, I just mean, mean everywhere that that catalog from the ages is so ubiquitous. Sure. You'll hear some of those, there's the a big half a dozen tracks from the Thompson Twins are still on radio. Yeah, it's, amazing. it's good stuff. Okay. Now, we got to talk about Underworld. I am yeah. fascinated by these guys. I've tried to get Carl Hyde on here a couple of times, and he has politely turned me down. But um, okay. <laughs> they, uh, they, just to go from Frewer with, you know, Doot yeah. Doot.
this you know sort of another synth pop little maybe a little more adventurous in those first couple of albums and then to just completely go off into being these techno pioneers that they are now it's a transformation that is so fascinating how did you come to work with underworld uh it was that all that same sort of mix um with the thompson twins rupert merton that's the guy's name okay okay the publisher and sort of manager and that Oh, well, I bumped into them and was asked to check out the fur records, even though they weren't fur at that time, uh-huh. <laughs> and which I thought were fantastic, really, really funny. I found them so amusing uh-huh. <laughs> in, in, a, in a great in a great way. And the, even the story of why they called it fur, you know, was in, a, in and of itself so calm. I don't even know. What's the story? Well, they, they didn't they, they didn't want to be called anything. They wanted to be called some sort of hieroglyphic mm. and um so they and they had this sort of squiggle which they just wanted to you know get the record out like that and it would just you have this squiggle and um the record company sort of went along with the idea whilst they were making the record but presumably you know they were always determined at the end of the day before they released it they had to insist they called themselves something right because <laughs> you can't just go into a record stop and shop and do a little sort of funny movement with your arm. Right. <laughs> so, so they, they, the pair of them, actually it wasn't the pair of them, it was the whole band. All five of them spent one long evening, so legend has it, uh, staring at that squiggle, trying to imagine if it was sort of bad writing, what might it say? <laughs> And they looked at it and they went, well, that sounds, it looks a bit like an F at the beginning, like a F, and then maybe an R, and an E, U, E, R, I don't know. Like so they settled on that combination of letters, which, you know, rather difficultly is pronounced fr. <laughs> and that's what they told CBS that they were called. No way. And, yeah. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah, I just, uh, Carl Hyde seems like such a personality. What was he? Uh, you know, that Underneath the Radar album, that was a big deal uh, for me when I was growing up, that album.
He had this look. They were sort of coming out from out of nowhere. Um, yeah. What was the plan? I mean, when you when you work with people like Carl Hyde, are you collaborating with him? Are you directing him? Are you supporting his vision? I'm sure it's a little bit of all of those things, but how did well, you work with Carl? With under, well, particularly underneath the radar, that that album was came came to me as all these tracks that they'd already kind of rehearsed up. They were pretty clear about what they wanted to do. Hmm. The unique way that we did that was that it was actually, you know, even though a lot of it was done with electronics, it was all done live in one pass. Hmm. And this was obviously pretty rare in those days when everyone was just multi-tracking like mad everywhere. And, and as for me too, but yeah. this idea, we tried to cultivate a way that we could have them perform live, but keep you know the, the acoustic stuff and the electric stuff all going in very unique ways, but at the same time in the same pass. And because they had, you know, they always had a set tempo, we found that we could do live passes, but you know, take different parts of different tracks from each take, even though it was live, and stitch them together in a different way. So mm. we had a very unique way of working. It was really good fun. It meant that the spirit was always everybody playing together. Nobody ever overdubbed. And that gave it a really special quality for me and for the band. So we, we it was a, this was a very difficult aim, but we got it. We did it. We were all really pleased with it afterwards. Um, but it was a very different way of recording. It was like you know producing a live gig in a way. Mm. Okay. Why, why, why didn't they use you for the next album? Change the weather. Do you know? I, I think at that point it was it was something that they were less sure about what they wanted to do, uh, um, and they wanted to experiment more. Okay. And Rick was, you know, because Rick is the one that is the master sonic mind behind the band, okay. and he wanted to experiment more on that side of it. Uh, and in a way, because I was producing in a less typical way for me. I mean, I wasn't hand honing all the sounds like I do with most people. This was, you know, just engineering a very different and unusual way of recording. And that was my role in it. Okay. Um, so when it came to the album after it, they were not going to be working that way simply because they were less sure about what they wanted to do. And, uh, and it was also, you know, much more that, Rick wanted to be at the helm trying to sort of find out what they all wanted to do. And of course, it became, you know, he is an amazing, an amazing engineering producing soundsmith. Yeah. So this was really the, the real beginning of him taking the reins. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they became a completely different band, uh, group or whatever with the, with the, only the name survived after those first two albums into what they would become, you know, um, with Born yeah, Slippy they, and all that. They just went a completely different direction. They did. And, and they, you know, I, with both I, Carl and Rick, I'm still very close to this. Some of my most favorite people on the planet. Good. When they came out of that second album, they, they knew that they didn't really want to do, you know, sort of faux rock band stuff anymore. They really wanted to follow the 
the music that, that they were finding very very exciting which you know we, we'd now yeah rather ubiquitously call sort of edm right but they, they wanted to be there at the beginning and and cultivate these sonic landscapes just themselves and all the time really rick is the one that has the fastidious programming art and mixing art and is a genius at it carl is always the the loose character who's just gonna stop rick from being too literal <laughs> too literal about everything he will throw stones in the spokes he will yeah up with crazy ideas that you know rick will say that's just too crazy but you know what let me have a go at it yeah and it, so they, they became really really an amazing duo working together i mean i don't think rick would have done anything anywhere near the level even though he was you know to the outside world he, he'd be seen to be doing you know almost all of it himself and you know except for the vocals obviously and the sort uh -huh. of guitar, guitar things but you know so much of it is born out of the electronic canvas and that's very much rick's domain as is the mixing and if you will the producing so in so many ways he was doing all of this and carl was fronting it and making you know making sure that things never became predictable uh, and that became such a great combination. I mean, I think they're yeah. amazing. I, I used to use Second Toughest in the Infants as my um, go-to track when I, were ever, when I was ever in the studio that I hadn't worked in before, and I just wanted to test how the studio felt. Interesting. I, I wouldn't use one of my own productions because I didn't produce that track. Yeah. This was you know, the first track on that Second Toughest which is like three tracks rolled into one. Uh -huh. That's Fifteen-minute piece played loud in the studio is an amazing for me test record of how that studio works. Oh, I love color like that. That is fascinating. Great. Okay. Yeah, I love those guys. Interesting. Okay, now we're coming up on um, Stevie Nicks. Uh, one of my one of my listeners, Vandal Truong, he had asked uh, some, a question I had had, which was how you came to be connected with Stevie. And he actually answered, asked, and I hope this isn't too personal, if you two were a couple or if there was any kind of romantic angle to any of this. Um, I'm assuming that she liked what you did with Tina Turner and is thinking, well, if, she can if he can work with someone like Tina, he can work with me. But maybe you tell me. Yeah, no, there was no Tina Turner connection there at all. Oh. That's not really, 
that's not really her kind of music. She's very, you know, in her, she has a very clear picture of the world that she lives in musically and in most respects. I mean, it is, it is no secret that she and I were a bit of an item for Were you? Okay. Two, two okay. years around that, uh, around that time, and that was talked about in a, a few odd magazines. I remember us being in People magazine. I think it's the only time I've ever been in People magazine. <laughs> she and I were went, went to the Rattle and Hum premiere. Oh, right. In LA, and that we were suddenly fo- you know photographed there. Yeah. And, and it was a bit more conspicuous than we'd been up until then. Okay. But uh, how did that come together? Well, at that time, Tony Dimitriadis was managing her. Tony Dimitriadis had been Tom Petty's manager for years, right, mm-hmm. from the, since, since the 70s. And he still is. And he, it came through him. Um, I, you know, I'm just trying to remember how it started. So you I weren't knew- a couple beforehand you became a couple after working on the album yeah yeah we well we just worked together on her music and i was co-writing of it some of it with her and it just became an organic Mm -hmm. thing you can some some other relationship of a producer is so searching you become like i always used to say that you know only about 15 percent of my job as a producer is being musical the other 85 percent is being a therapist yeah (laughs) <laughs> because, you, because you, not in, you know, any archetypal therapist way, but just in the sense that you are trying to find out what makes that artist tick, mm-hmm. and then find out what's what sort of condition they're in when they're at their best. And by condition, I mean you know, what state of mind they're in, what experience they're having that day or that week, that somehow contributes to them producing great performances and possibly even great writing mm-hmm. and so those sort of things you know are they become you know very intimate uh it doesn't matter whether you know it doesn't often lead to things that that happen there but you know there is a closeness that can produce all kinds of unexpected right <laughs> of course occurrences so anyway yeah. but it was it was good and we yeah, it was a good combination. I mean, we did work well together, but I'm just trying to think where the idea came from. That's a very good mm. question. This is the, I should say, because I don't think we've established it, this is the Other Side of the Mirror album, correct? Correct. And yeah. uh, so did you co-wrote, that was the album with Room on Fire, right? Which yeah. was a pretty big hit.
you co-write that? Yes. Okay. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, you know, as we established yesterday, you you aren't, you didn't write songs that entered the pop top 40 in the States very often. Maybe no. this was one of the one and only times. I don't know. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, okay, if this is too personal, you can tell me and I'll cut it out. This was, I, as I understand it, sort of the height of kind of her drug problems. Um, was that an issue in your relationship? And it was actually after she was already, uh, she had already gone to the Betty Ford Clinic. Again, I don't think that's a right. secret. Nope. And she'd come out of that uh, and she was on many levels a changed woman. Okay. Um, she was already, she was battling a little bit of weight problems because of the steroid treatment they gave her mm. at the Ford Clinic. And that was, that was more her concern at that time was, was, you know, trying to make sure she didn't gain any excess weight and not yeah. feel herself. Um, but no, okay. it, was, it was already on the brighter side of. Okay, good. And in that phase, in those sort of 18 months, two years that we uh, were, you know, to either working on the album or seeing each other, it was, it was, there were a lot of changes in her life, which I think I, I like to think I sort of helped. Oh, cool. Good. Now, did you two live together in L.A.? Or did you remain sort of... Yeah. Uh, okay, I didn't well, know if you had always worked out of London this whole time, or... I had, yes. It's just we 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 spent about a year working on the album in Los Angeles. Got it. And then she came over and worked at my studio in Buckinghamshire in England. Mm-hmm. That's where we finished it off and mixed it. Hmm. Um, so it, it was between the two, but it was mostly in L.A., yeah. Now, why did you two break up? Because um, she seems like, um, and I don't mean this derogatory, she seems like a serial monogamist in a lot of ways, you know? Mm-hmm. She kind of goes through boyfriends, never wanting to get married or settle down. Was that ultimately what led to you two kind of splitting? Or you don't have to answer if it's too personal again. Yeah, I'd rather not say about that. Okay. I, okay. I think it's because there is no blame and it wasn't really a decision. There were things that affected it, but Got it. In, in, in a sense... You know, when you're a star that is that major, you have to be, you know, obviously completely prepared to be uh, that person's life. Yeah. Uh, because it's unstoppable and you can never run away from it wherever you end up being. Right. Unless, you know, unless it's Tamata Pakatangi land, um, <laughs> you, can't, you can't get away from it. So you have to feel absolutely at one with that and find a relationship which balances out well there uh, and it's that's it's a very very tall order yeah and it's very it's, it's therefore also difficult to be for, for both of you to be completely yourselves independently yeah okay. um, it's it's trouble i mean for for so many big artists to find a relationship that really works well for them it takes a very special someone yeah you know and it takes that special someone to have a very particular way of living with that secondhand fame. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so you're married now, right? Yeah. Okay. How long have you been married? Not oh, long. Really? Oh, really? No, I mean, I, the lady I'm married to now, we met 10 years ago at her sister's wedding. Okay. In Los Angeles, but we only got married a couple of years ago. Okay. Oh, interesting. Good we, for you. We, we've been together for a decade, so yeah. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. I always find it interesting, kind of what people's personal situations are. Uh, okay. Let's talk about Rush for a minute. Now, I remember I think there's only a couple left on here. I got like maybe three or four left, by the way, Rupert. Um, so Rush, uh, the thing that I will always remember is, um, I believe it was a couple of years ago, well, maybe closer to 10 now, that documentary Beyond the Lighted Stage came out. And it was such a fantastic documentary on that band. And I've always been a fan, but that one really solidified that these are great guys and I want to support them and I love them. And I remember them interviewing you and you saying that you couldn't imagine why one of the great rock bands in history were being, and I think it was bathed in synths. I think that's what, that was the terminology you used, if I remember right. remember that interview but yes yes okay i'm pretty sure that's it and i think that's where i heard it unless it was on something else like a behind the music or something like that but um so is that what it was did they approach you saying we think rupert hine is going to help us kind of transition away from new wave influences into more of a rock sound or merge the two better which is obviously a strength for you um what was the thinking there well it's (laughs) it's it's really interesting. The rush, I mean, I'm sure the boys won't mind me saying that they, they had asked me for two or three albums through the 80s, if I would be interested. That makes in, sense. In working with them. And I just kept thinking of them as, you know, more of A, the kind of heavy band from the 70s, B, the kind of would-be police band that they morphed into in the early 80s, neither of which particularly you know, appealed to me. And then there was this voice that drove me crazy. This, you know, <laughs> constant yelling. There's no way I can work with this one. And I told him that. But I only told them when I finally turned up about four albums deep, which was the one that turned out to be Presto, when I thought each time they asked me, you know, this is so sweet. I should, I should at least turn up and find out what it is that they think I can do. Uh-huh. Now, you know, given that I didn't, you know, apart from 10 years earlier when I did the Saga record, you know what I mean? That True, was the good only point. I didn't seem to do anything rock. I hadn't done rock rock. I mean, I'd done the fix in their completely new rock, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I suppose to some degree, once they did their sort of would-be police kind of era that, um, you know, they probably thought, 
that was on a, a par with that. Mm. But um, I mean, I'm not being rude. You know, when I when I sat to them, I, and I did actually say to Giddy, if you could sing a fucking octave lower, I'd be interested <laughs> in working with you because then you'd be a person, you'd be a human being. We you, we would hear your personality, we would know who you were. You can't think anything when guys talking like this. <laughs> Uh, that's great after that that had died down of course the guys are the world's nicest people on this planet and I I don't say that easily they're just fantastic they're such great people so they they did find this funny (laughs) and Getty said Getty just said to me so what would you have me do and I said I just told you an octave lower let's just try the songs an octave lower a full octave lower don't just drop a key or two let's just say the same key and sing it down an octave. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we could try it, which we did. I mean, I'm going. I'm. I'm exaggerating the story really because I'm. I don't want to leave the other things that were said in this first meeting. Okay. I can come back to that in a moment. So the other things were, I, I guess, what I was in a sense what you were referring to when you were quoting the based in since. So the other thing is, you're a power trio, mm-hmm. and all I can hear is synthesizers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's a guitarist, a baseball, and a drummer. How come all I hear is synths? How does that work? And they said, well, yeah, we've had a lot of fun doing that, but we're beginning to think now that, you know what? You might be right. right? <laughs> this, might be, this might be a time to sort of... I said, well, that, if you know, I, I'm not likely to want to make a really average rock record. You guys are exceptional. You do a thing that is just so you... No one else really does it like you. No one else even kind of tries to do it. Right. Not that, that the detail that you guys have in terms of your arrangements, your Neil's drum parts are just out of this world. I mean, it's like you've got these great ingredients, but all the time you just put lashings of synth on it, you're, you're just washing away all the originality. It would be much more interesting to figure out what you three guys can do on the instruments that you play and our brilliant app could do with a new perspective, you know, I could yeah. be that perspective. So that was it. And then the shock came was when Neil, when I said to me, and what, and what did you think I, I would bring to you? And Neil just was the first, didn't even let the other two speak. Neil just said, do you know we've been playing tracks from your immunity album as our go-to tracks when the audience is settling in before we play? Really? And I went, no, we we love that album. It is such an original record. We want the original brain that made that record to work with us. Wow. What a compliment to you. So that was it. Well, that was, and that made it, of course, 10 times more interesting because what they yeah. were saying, however you come up with that weird shit that you come up with on your own stuff, <laughs> right. we would like some of that. You know, Be weird with us. Or yeah. Maybe, you have to be that would make... So that was a pretty good thing for them to say that, you know, I mean, that was kind of like throwing the glove down. You know, sure. Say, Let's just try this. Well, so it's, we it, it's interesting, too, that they weren't <clears throat> they were influenced by your personal solo work, not production jobs you did with other people that they admired. They like what you do. That's yeah. really fascinating. Well, that and, that, and that's as we were saying earlier on. um yesterday in fact um that was largely the 
you know, the reason that most people worked with me in all that first half of the 80s work yeah, was because yeah. of my own records. They were fans of my stuff, which was not big commercially. It was never intended to be. It was just my sonic paintings. Right. And it, right. Was, it was those that people wanted to feel that kind of energy on their own albums. And That's so there was, there was Rush saying exactly that. Uh, so once we tried singing an octave down, which half the tracks on Presto are, and a lot of that singing had on Presto, we started to do this thing, which they continued on Roller Bones and to some extent since, where he has been more selective on when he used the full mm. singing up on the ceiling perspective, which <laughs> I was trying to ke keep it that you could use those moments for when it was dynamically essential for something extraordinary to happen. But otherwise, by singing in this lower octave, you could you could really hear Getty the man telling you about things, you know, telling you stories. You could yeah, understand yeah. what he was saying. It's very hard. It is literally very hard. You know, whether it's Robert Plant or any of those singers that sung at that level, it's very hard to hear the text. Mm -hmm. So you don't you don't really worry about the words. You just love the sound of the voice and the whole instrumental side of the track. But you right there, you're losing the strength of the words. And Neil's words are exquisite you know he's an intelligent yeah. and very bright really interesting writer his last writer book you know i love that yeah. was the other thing that made me realize that you know they were all in their own way artists with a capital a not just instrumentalists in their own instrument but artists you know whether they were authors yeah. or writers or like you know getty being on the film board of canada you know being part of the the team that you know accepts foreign work into the country and gives right. them yeah i mean they've all got other interests that are That's very fascinating okay that about them and they were just so funny as people <laughs> here i was doing their umpteenth album and you know the other two guys referred to neil you know as you know if i was talking about something on the track and they would say oh you have to go and talk to the new boy about that <laughs> i mean he had done every one of their albums except the first one. Right. <laughs> but he was still the new guy. What's it like directing Neil Peart? Do you, um, I mean, does he take direction uh, openly? Is he op open to hearing you say, can you try something different? I mean, he's the greatest drummer of all time. Do you let him just do his own thing or do you try to guide him a little bit? Hmm. He, I mean, he would absolutely take guidance because that same bright mind is going to understand that you know you 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 can't be everything to yourself. Good. Okay. But having said that, did was it often necessary? No, because his the effort, you know, the effort that he puts into a drum track, a part of a whole song that the three of them have collectively written, the energy that Neil puts into that drum track is that. However great that is, and however many many elements it has, which is often more many, you know, so many you can barely count them, mm -hmm. that he also at the same time has got to be able to play everything in one pass because he never overdubs. Right. Oh, okay. So when you so you listen to incredibly complicated rush tracks, and you say, well, there's a master drum part. There's obviously an overdub where he's put that symbol or that thingy and there's those percussion tracks obviously he's played those separately and all that no he hasn't oh. they, they all go down in one pass 
and that's his own sort of puzzle. He only yeah. does that just to tease himself and to make sure he drives himself all the time to do something spectacular. And that, that is really a, a complete wonder to behold. I actually, yeah. on track, I actually was so confused by what I was hearing um, that I had to, whilst he was playing, I was talking to the uh, Steve Taylor, the engineer, saying, can you work out how he's playing everything on this? Because look, and I would pinpoint all the bits. So uh, just imagine, because he's, uh, he's in the booth, so we can't see him clearly from the right. room. How's he, how is he, you know, and I, we would work out all the parts. How can you do that and only have four limbs? <laughs> and, and we were thinking, you know, trying to work it out piece by piece. And then, and then both Steve and I just ended up staring at each other. And I just looked. I've got to go out and see what's going on here. So I just walked out into the studio and I stood in front of Neil whilst he was playing and the, the other, the whole band were playing. Mm-hmm. And I just stood in front of the screen in front of the drums and I watched him play the whole thing and I still couldn't work it out. Yeah. And I'm seeing him. I'm looking at him. <laughs> I still can't work out how you can play all those things for six limbs in one go. That's amazing. I'm not surprised to hear you say that. That's his reputation. People might say, they try to imagine the most complicated rush track they can imagine that I must be talking about. In fact, I was talking about a song called Bravado. people they would think well that's that sort of fairly relaxed sort of ballady thing it's, which is Coop's one of my most favorite songs they've written it's so gorgeous that track yeah it just makes it gives me goosebumps and it, the, but the drum track is you you don't need, you've got to be a drummer to listen to it and know what's so difficult to do huh. it's not you can easily explain other than I can tell you I can give you a clue it's 16s on the hi-hat, so you've got a ticka ticka bucket ticka 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 bucket going on. Uh-huh. And then you've got this good gudung, gudung happening each bar, so you've got a ticka ticka bucket ticka ticka gudung, ticka ticka Now this gudung sound is not one hand hitting two drums one after the other. That would be a bubum. Uh-huh. A gudung is when two hands do it one just a bit before the other. So that's a real... That's a movement where you've got to have the two arms free to make that work. And how can you do that when that's all over the right-hand side of your body and the left-hand side of the body, you're using both those arms for the 16s on the hi-hat. How can you get both of them away from that 16s to hit these two drums? So I'm in the middle of working out how he does that, which is not so unusual. 
for reasons again really the drummers will probably be able to guess but as we're listening to that he then starts to put this you know, just keep that in your imagination ticky ticky back and ticky ticky good and suddenly goes um ding and ding ding on another single symbol the ride symbol this is going on top of everything else so he's, got, he's got eights on the ride symbol he's got 16s on the hi-hat he's got the snare and he's got this good going on right over his right hand side of his body i'm watching him doing it and I still can't work out how he's doing it. Oh, that is fascinating. Oh, man, he's amazing. See, most other people would just overdub that ting, 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 ting on, on the end, you know, because yeah. they'd, be, they'd be chilled enough that, you know, getting the 16s on the hi-hat and this tom-tom pattern over on the other side, it would be impressive enough to make that really work well. Yeah. But the these ride symbols as well it was like somebody just slapping you in the face and saying take that mofo right <laughs> well he has he has the power to do that because he's the greatest oh that's amazing he certainly is he absolutely is i yeah. i said the same thing i mean never you know i worked with some really really great great drummers but if you're talking about technical ability there's nobody gets close yeah i believe it now lastly uh duncan chic I, um, that first Duncan Sheik album was also huge for me. Well, I know what you're doing, I see it all too clear. I only taste the saline when I kiss away your tears. You really had me going, wishing on a star. The black holes that surround you are heavier by far. I believed in your confusion. So completely torn It must have been that yesterday Was the day that I was born There's not much to examine Nothing left to hide You really can't be serious You have to ask me why I say goodbye Cause I am barely breathing And I can't find the air Don't know Back to a little story. I saw him in concert uh, in Salt Lake City when I was in college promoting right. that album. And I had seen him on TV say that he was a big fan of Bjork and Radiohead, which today those those bands are huge. But at the time they weren't. And so I was a fan of those bands, too. And I felt really like he and I were connecting. And so I stuck around <laughs> after the show um, to meet him. And I mentioned, hey, I'm a big fan of those bands, too. And he signed my ticket stub and he said hey it's really nice to meet you he was so nice and then when yes. he came back around with the humming album yeah i went i was still in college and i even wore the same shirt because <laughs> i <laughs> i'm six foot eight so i stand out in a crowd anyway oh and i God. thought I, yeah i'm kind of hard to miss and i thought what if i i wonder if i wore the same shirt if he would look down from the stage and just say hey there's my buddy i remember <laughs> you you know but he didn't do that <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, and I know that he, uh, Howard talked about this when I saw him in concert last week, that they were, fr they are friends and wrote a song together. Yeah. I don't know that they were friends though, at the very, very beginning, this was Duncan's first album. Um, a great album and it's uh, overlooked. I think, how did this happen? I, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I know I, I should, I should be biased, but 
counting that aside, I'm, I think so. it's a great album. For me, it was a huge album for getting the, the minimalism right. Yes. It's such a minimal record. I mean, there's so much going on with so little making it. Uh, and that is, I mean, there's a lot in, there's a lot of thought that goes into that, of course. And really, the funniest thing was the, all the demos I would play, I was played to sort of, you know, to see why I would be interested in, were incredibly over-recorded. Really? In other words, oh. it was really, it was really something that you could tell he was in love with the idea of making the records, having uh -huh. fun, doing lots of stuff. So he did lots of stuff. And I, when I finally got to sit down with him, I, said, I just said to him, can you, can you actually, because I mean, all this is so heavily arranged, it, it's a little hard to know what the song's like. Uh, can you actually sit and play the song like on a piano or a guitar? And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, they all start like that. I said, well, can you just do that? So he picked up the guitar and he played a couple of songs. And I thought, oh, God, that sounds, that sounds mm -hmm. delicious. Mm -hmm. And he went, well, yeah, but I mean, we're going to do arrangements and production and stuff and we said yeah yeah we will we will we will but let's start with this you know just mm -hmm. a song just a guitar part and a voice or on a couple of tracks of piano and a voice and and then it was really being just so careful about what else we added and make sure that it was really needed yeah um, and that coupled with some really really elegant string arrangements which were again in and of themselves pretty minimal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, that, that's why I love that album in the end. Is it's just I think it's probably the most elegant record I've ever been responsible for producing. I would agree. I think it's lovely. Um, the song "Little Hands" is. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. That's uh, that just kills me every time. Yeah. It's I think it's the greatest. I want someone who doesn't want me back song maybe ever and uh, talk about minimalism. And in fact, when I saw him in concert the first time, I said, oh, you didn't play Little Hands. That's my favorite. And he said, yeah, it's really hard to get everyone to be quiet enough in yeah. in a venue to fully appreciate the song. And so he doesn't do it very yeah. often. No, yeah. and that's that's a very good reason. And he's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's something... Uh, Howard's voice is very unusual in a way, um, and he's, you know, he was very inspired by Howard Jones. I mean, that was, yeah. for him, that was the reason that when the record label suggested that I would be a good choice, he said, oh, that's the chap we did. Howard Jones, oh, yeah, 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 come on, let's get him, let's, you know, let's have a chat with him. <clears throat> so that, you know, Howard Jones was the connection as far as Duncan was concerned then. Um, but, you know, of course, we did... A, a kind of record that was a million miles away from that side of my work with Howard. Yeah. You know, I just remember barely breathing when, which wasn't on the album when we agreed to make it. I mean, oh, that really? was, wasn't on the list of songs. So we were making that record without that track. And he, when he arrived at my, I was then living in a chateau in France and I'd move all my studio over there. So he was coming to record in a, French Shadow, which he was very delighted about. Sure. And, and he arrived there saying, you know, I just, I, I just wrote this song <laughs> on the way over. Mm -hmm. um, and he played me Barely Breathing. Amazing. And uh, wow. I, I, remember, I remember sitting there thinking, that's a really good song. I, hope you, I mean, we should put that on this album. Yeah. 
then literally about i suppose about two days into working on the song in other words just after putting the first pass down i just had something which i i rarely have i mean i rarely think of singles partly for all those reasons i've told you mm-hmm. on this last five you think about singles it's like to me it's like thompson twins thinking about radio if you think about things like that that aren't just the essence of the song you're already fucked it's already going away from you yeah. just be in the song and amplify the song in every way you can even if that's silence mm-hmm. so we were listening to this song and i just said i just called up atlantic and i said I think I'm recording a hit single. <laughs> it's the only time in my career I've ever done that. Wow. And that song, didn't it, it set a record, I believe, for being in the top 40 for the most amount of weeks ever? Two years. Yes. It's the only record to have stayed in the top 100 for two years. That's single. It. That's it. Single. I mean, there's been many an album that's sure, lasted sure. that long, but singles, you just don't, singles just don't last that long normally. That is nuts. Wow. But the problem, but that that became a, a really weird and very unusual problem, that you know the way things work in, in America and in most countries, to be honest, I won't blame it just on America, mm-hmm. is that you know if you're playing the arse of a track, you won't play a second track from the same artist. But I mean, yeah, sure if it, it was, if it was the Beatles or Michael Jackson and he paid a you know a new artist, no, yeah, you don't, you just you play the song that everybody dials up wanting to hear. Mm-hmm. You don't play another track, and that meant that we never got another track away. People never stopped calling up radio asking to hear barely reading, so we never got the chance to get a second song off that album. That makes sense. I've always wondered what happened. And I think the you know there's a few tracks that could have been made it, but my yeah. my favorite track on the album is in the absence of sound. Yes, great song. Lovely, lovely orchestral arrangement, and Pino Palladino's amazing bass playing. Oh, I didn't realize he played on that. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I love that album, um, and he's you know he's one of my most favorite bass players. He's again such an elegant player. Yeah. He really you know each note is so carefully crafted, and uh, and and also you know, Duncan was already a huge fan of Pino Palladino quite separately from me, so we. We needed no encouragement to get Pini working on that. Now, humming was less successful. Um, yes, I didn't. I 
I bought the album when it came out and I didn't like it that much. I do love the song Rubbed Out. She justified and then she may well justify forever. She figures it's the only way to keep herself together. Something about a hotel rooms and horses and losing all her friends and hearing all their voices. Yeah, yeah. She brought it out, she covers it over. track off yeah. the album uh, yeah. i just didn't play that album as much as i did the first one and um and his again another one where his solo career kind of started to peter out but as it did thankfully his broadway career starts to take off so i'm really glad that he's become successful in this kind of new medium that seems to work for him i know it's amazing isn't it and he and i used to talk for hours and hours on how much we loathed musicals really <laughs> oh yeah when when he caught me up when he was what do they call what's that expression when you kind of road test a a theatre production whilst you're kind of writing it yeah like, like um I, I don't know if it's a sneak preview but um yeah I know what you mean it, it, it's it's doing a workshop you basically yes. do a work but there's another phrase that they use in theatre but you're essentially doing a workshop around the premise. So it's by no means finished. You're kind of writing it and fleshing it out, but you do it in front of a small audience that are themselves quite interested mm-hmm. and good for feedback. And he did that down right there in a little place. I'm feeling the name, but it's halfway between Los Angeles and Santa. Not mm. what's the one going down the Mexican border? I'm sorry, I'm just my. Um. my Brain is. Uh, San Diego. San Diego, thank you very much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's halfway between them is this little, tiny little town, and they have a theatre there that he was workshopping his first musical, Spring Awakening. And he called me up from there and said, Root, I, if you've got a chance to come and hear some stuff, I'd be very, very, very interested in playing you things. I said, oh, yeah, sure, why? He said, well, I've, I've written a musical. And there was this like, what? <laughs> but that was the first half of the sentence. The second half of the sentence was, I've, I've written a musical for people who hate musicals. Nice. Yes. And because he said that was me. You know, I wrote a yeah. musical, you know, knowing that I loathe musicals, but there's nothing wrong in the idea of a great libretto and a great story in it being about music and text. And I just needed to write something 
that didn't have all those things that you and I hate, Baba musicals, when you suddenly burst into song. Right. That's the bit where I just want to shoot the entire cast when that happens. <laughs> and I'm not a violent man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, good. I love him a lot. I'm glad he found his niche. Um, and he did. And he's done so well. And he's yeah. I was three years ago, went to see you know, American Psycho here in London when he... He started that here in London, and it was really great. You know, he's amazing how he's doing it. Fantastic. Good. Good. For and he's him. still a really, really, really good friend. I never go to New York without hanging with him. Oh, that's great. Oh, what a good story. Well, Rupert, I could uh, I could keep you for hours longer, but I am so grateful for you, and thank you for all the good work you've put out into this world. It's touched me in many ways throughout my life, and I'm so thankful for you. And yeah, thank you for talking well, for me. It's great to hear. It was great to hear that you listened to so many of us, so many different kinds of artists. There you have it, Rupert Hine. I love that one. I loved every story he told. I thought that was so fascinating, and I hope you guys did too. Plus, doesn't that make you want to go back and rediscover his solo stuff? I mean, all these people that we talked about, and everybody's mentioning things like how uh, influenced they were by his solo material before he ever became a producer. I got to go back and listen to that. I knew some of it, but I got to do it again. Plus, I mean, little asides like the Def Leppard stuff. I mean, who would have guessed? So, so interesting. And I want to say thanks to his wife, Faye, for helping set this up. Um, We're doing two songs here for the outro. This first one, hopefully you recognize this. It's from Better Off Dead. Of course, we had to play another Better Off Dead song on here. And then afterwards, a minute ago, when we were talking about Duncan Sheik, I mentioned that Duncan has a song called Little Hands that is the best I want someone who doesn't want me back like I want them song of all time. And we didn't play it when I mentioned it here because I was saving it for the end. So if you're not familiar with the song Little Hands by Duncan Sheik, stick around. It is one of the just most intense, dark, creepiest, oh, I love somebody, I want him so bad, and there's nothing I can do about it kind of songs ever. It's so great. Now, the next couple of weeks, we're kind of going in a different direction. We're going classic rock, and I'm talking late 60s. So next week's guest was a member of one of the most influential bands ever that doesn't get the credit they deserve, and they were really big in the late 60s. So little teaser for next week. Hopefully that whets your appetite. Um, you guys know the drill by now. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Um, we put out new episodes every Tuesday. And a huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich. He had a lot of work to do on this one because we stuffed it with so much music, but it's good and he did great. Thank you, Jan, for everything you do. We will talk to you guys next Tuesday.
so depraved and evil. Oh Lord, what would she say? She says, I'm afraid it's not to be your sweet guy, but you ain't for me.
It's okay.